From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy, featured in the medical news section of JAMA. Hi, I'm Faiza Sanjar, and this is the JAMA Medical News Summary, an audio review of highlights in medical news appearing in this month's issues of the journal. Today, I'll be reviewing the February 2019 issues of JAMA. Starting with features, in the February 5th issue, Jennifer Abbasi interviews Robert Segge, MD-PhD, co-author on the American Academy of Pediatrics' latest policy statement on corporal punishment of children. The statement recommends against this practice and verbal discipline that causes shame or humiliation. The interview discusses what's covered in the newest statement, the first major revise since 1998, and the evidence space behind the new recommendations as well as constructive approaches to disciplining children. So what do recent studies tell us about the effectiveness of spanking and other physical discipline? Well, first of all, it's not effective. There was a meta-analysis of quite a large number of studies, and they all showed that corporal punishment doesn't work. It doesn't cause children to change their own behavior, certainly not in the medium or long term. And what do we know about the consequences of corporal punishment on children? There are three main kinds of consequences for children from corporal punishment. The first is that it increases their aggressive behavior and causes them more problems, therefore, in school and with their parents. In the largest study of its kind, a longitudinal study that followed children over several ways of study, corporal punishment often led to a vicious cycle where the children became more oppositional as they experienced corporal punishment causing their behavior to get worse, and the parents use more corporal punishment, causing the children to become more oppositional and less well-behaved, causing the parents to use more corporal punishment, and on and on it went. So for some group of children, this vicious cycle was really very, very difficult. The second consequence, which is a little harder to be as certain about, is there is evidence that the use of corporal punishment affects children's brain development. Dr. Segge said that in one study of young adults, those who had consistently been exposed to harsh corporal punishment had lower prefrontal cortical gray matter and lower performance IQ than those who hadn't. The study speaks to a broader body of research looking at the effects of experience on children's brain growth. We now know, for example, that toxic stress can cause similar changes in children's brains. Some researchers believe that elevated cortisol levels are responsible for these changes in the brain. Here's Dr. Segi again. The third set of outcomes are mental health problems. And in a fair number of studies, children who have had corporal punishment have uh, mental health problems, including anxiety and depression and other common outcomes. So what we have, in summary is that corporal punishment is ineffective and puts children at risk for poor developmental and behavioral outcomes. And with that, the Academy felt very strongly um, that parents should not be spanking their kids or verbally humiliating them. In the same issue, Rebecca Volker writes about the growing interest in exploring the nutritional, environmental, and health benefits of eating insects, also referred to as entomophagy. Researchers have focused in particular on crickets, and there are already many products on the market that incorporate cricket powder into foods ranging from pasta and chips to brownie mix. 
Some in the field refer to crickets as the gateway bug because they might grease the wheels of consumer acceptance of bug consumption. According to recent reports, growing insects for human consumption takes up less space, emits fewer greenhouse gases, and uses less energy than meat and poultry production. Nutritionally speaking, studies suggest insects may pack a similar or greater protein punch than traditional animal sources and may also be higher in healthful nutrients like vitamins A, C, B12, and fiber. However, there's still much more research to be done before the health benefits of entomophagy can be fully demonstrated. Multidisciplinary groups of experts are now joining forces to systematically study the health, social, and environmental implications of insect consumption and how to best market and produce insects for this purpose. February featured another interview by Jennifer Abbasi with Leanna Wen, MD, the new president of Planned Parenthood. Wen, who is only the second physician to hold this role, discusses the many influences in her life that led her to medicine and Planned Parenthood and her plans for the future of the organization. Actually, today, which is December 12, 2018, it's exactly 28 years after my family and I first came to the U.S. We came on December 12, 1990. When we first came, my parents and I had $40 to our name. We depended on Medicaid. We depended on WIC. Um, when my mother was pregnant with my little sister, um, we depended on food stamps. And we depended on Planned Parenthood for our health care. Why did you make the switch from practicing medicine to public health? Being a doctor has always been my lifelong childhood dream. It's something that I've wanted to do for as long as I can remember. And it was very true for me that I practice medicine now and I do some urgent care shifts. And it's such a great privilege for me to be entrusted with the lives and livelihoods of my patients and their families And knowing that by improving my patient's health, I'm also improving the well-being of that family and of the community that they're living in, too. It was working in the ER, though, working in the emergency department, that I saw the limitations of medicine. I saw that so much of what's making our patients ill isn't just about the disease that they happen to have. I mean, I remember a patient of mine who was cutting her blood pressure pills into halves and then quarters. Another patient couldn't afford asthma inhalers for her child. Another patient waited more than a year before having a lump in her breast examined. And by the time she came in to get care, she was diagnosed with metastatic cancer. And not long after I saw her, she died, leaving behind three young children. This is what's at stake. And... I wanted to make a difference in the lives of my patients in front of me and to best be able to advocate for them. And so I continued to practice medicine, but in late 2014, early 2015, I took on the job of the Baltimore City Health Commissioner so that I could address the health needs on a larger scale from a public health lens so that ideally I could prevent people from getting sick in the first place Let's talk about Planned Parenthood. So you're only the second physician president of Planned Parenthood, which I was surprised to learn, and you're the first in almost 50 years. So what does a physician bring to the table? The understanding that reproductive health care is health care, that abortion is part of the full spectrum of reproductive health care, that women's health care is health care, and that health care for all is a fundamental human right. That's my deeply held core belief as a person, That's what I understand as a physician, 
And that's also the core value of Planned Parenthood. So tell us about the new This Is Healthcare initiative. I started my job about four weeks ago, and one of the first things that I did is to launch this national awareness campaign called This Is Healthcare. This Is Healthcare emphasizes that the work that we do at Planned Parenthood and more broadly, the work of reproductive health and women's healthcare is exactly what it is, which is healthcare. We emphasize that cancer screenings, well woman exams, vaccinations, primary care, all of these things are part of healthcare. The full spectrum of reproductive healthcare, including birth control, forms of contraception, and of course, safe legal abortions, are all part of healthcare. The LGBTQ healthcare, trans care, all of this is healthcare. And I wanted to set that as the frame for the work that we do because that is what we do. Every year we have nearly two and a half million patients who come to our over 600 health centers around the country because of that. Unfortunately, the work that we do at Planned Parenthood and more broadly, reproductive healthcare and women's healthcare has been under attack. In the last seven years, there have been over 400 restrictions on abortion and reproductive rights that have been passed on the state level. There are daily attacks on the work that we do. I mean, we saw that the Trump administration, for example, has recently finalized a rule that would allow employers to deny women coverage for birth control. I mean, it's 2018, and we're still arguing about birth control. There are daily attacks from all sides in states, from the federal government, including from the judiciary, that directly limit people's access to get basic health care. I mean, we're facing a situation where within the next year, we could see Roe versus Wade be overturned or further eroded, that there are more than 20 cases right now that are one step away from the Supreme Court that directly involve reproductive rights and health care. And if that were to happen, it could mean that 25 million women, which is one in three women of reproductive age in this country, could be living in states where abortion is outlawed, banned, and criminalized. This is what's at stake. To learn more, visit our article in the February 12th issue. Next up in features, Jennifer Abassi also writes about two recent studies published in Cell that suggest probiotics may either fail to colonize the gut or delay the return of the native gut flora after a course of antibiotics in healthy adults. The studies question the popular wisdom of taking probiotics to maintain a healthy gut or restore the gut microbiome after antibiotic treatment, two common indications. Whether probiotics successfully colonized the gut was dependent on the study participants' pre-existing microbiomes, indicating that like other medical and drug treatments, a personalized approach to microbiome interventions may be more effective. Although these findings were less than promising, there may be a silver lining. A combination of antibiotic and probiotic treatment could potentially be used to reset the gut microbiome and reverse dysbiosis associated with illnesses like inflammatory bowel disease, according to experts. Visit our article in the February 19th issue to learn more. And lastly, in news features, Rita Rubin reports on the underlying factors contributing to the recent rise in congenital syphilis cases across the country. And Jennifer Abbasi summarizes what's new in the cholesterol clinical practice guidelines recently released from the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, and several other organizations. 
According to the CDC, 2017 saw a record 918 neonates infected by their mothers in utero or at delivery with syphilis. After steady declines between 2008 and 2012, cases of congenital syphilis in the U.S. have more than doubled from 2013 to 2017. This despite the fact that syphilis can be successfully treated with just one or three weekly injections of long-acting penicillin, which reduces maternal-child transmission to virtually zero. So why are mothers still passing the disease to their babies? Experts cite lapses in syphilis screening, which the CDC recommends for all women at the first prenatal visit and for high-risk women in the third trimester and at delivery as well. A lack of clinician awareness about syphilis and the structural barriers to prenatal care and syphilis treatment may also be contributing factors. Several states are now making concerted efforts to educate clinicians who provide prenatal care about screening, diagnosis, and treatment of syphilis, and increase awareness of syphilis among pregnant women and their partners. In the new cholesterol guidelines, statin treatment targets are back for both primary and secondary prevention. The guidelines also brought big news in secondary prevention. The addition of non-statin drugs such as azetamibe and PCSK9 inhibitors to statin therapy, particularly for those patients at high risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. For primary prevention, physicians can also consider adding azetamide or a PCSK9 inhibitor to high-intensity statin therapy for patients with LDLC levels at or above 190 mg per deciliter that don't drop below 100 mg per deciliter on statins. The new guideline also further validated the risk calculator, released in 2013, and emphasized personalizing risk assessment to guide clinical decisions in primary prevention. For those at intermediate risk, for example, certain factors that may help tip the scales in favor of statin therapy include ethnicity, family history, metabolic syndrome, history of preeclampsia or premature menopause, chronic inflammatory disorders, chronic kidney disease, and persistently elevated LDLC or triglyceride levels. See our February 26th issue for more details on these two stories. Next up, our running series, Benched Bedside, which covers recent advances in preclinical biomedical research. This month, Tracy Hampton discusses findings recently published in Cell, which suggests that in people with high trait anxiety, activity in a specific limbic brain network correlates with variations in self-reported mood over time. Researchers obtained intracranial encephalography recordings from 21 patients with epilepsy and found that in a certain subset, synchronized oscillations between the hippocampus and amygdala predicted low or depressed mood. This mood-predictive network was only observed in patients with high baseline levels of trait anxiety or the tendency to experience a stable level of anxiety in response to varied stimuli. The findings could also disentangle the heterogeneity seen in depression and aid in development of novel treatments, according to experts. For more details, visit the February 5th issue of JAMA. In our monthly column covering the latest biotech innovations, Jennifer Abbasi discusses a recent study that describes a new imaging needle designed to improve blood vessel detection and reduce hemorrhages during brain biopsies. In other biotech news, an intracortical brain-computer interface allowed people with paralysis to browse the internet, send emails, and more by just thinking about these tasks, and a new deep brain stimulation target to ease depression symptoms. Visit the February 12th issue of JAMA to read more. Moving on to headlines in the news from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Food and Drug Administration. Bridget Kuhn covers recent CDC reports documenting mycobacterium chimera contamination of heart bypass equipment 
an outbreak of wound botulism traced to black tar heroin use, a decline in opioid prescriptions, and trends in contraceptive use in the U.S. For more details, visit the February 12th and 26th issues. Rebecca Volker reports on the FDA's continued evaluation of the risks associated with the permanent birth control device eSure, which is no longer sold in the U.S. In other headlines, the FDA also announced the approval of a new once-daily oral treatment procalopride for adults with chronic idiopathic constipation, an eye-tracking test to help diagnose concussion, and the first U.S. clinical trial of intravenous bacteriophage therapy. For more news from the FDA, visit the February 5th and 19th issues. And last but not least, in the February 26th issue of JAMA, Anita Slomsky reviews findings from five recently published randomized clinical trials. Among them, a study in JAMA internal medicine found supplementing nicotine replacement therapy and text message support with phone counseling increased quit rates among low-income smokers. In other clinical trial news, Educational posters improved patient knowledge and decision-making about contraceptives. Body mass index did not accurately predict breast cancer risk among postmenopausal women. And exercise improved executive function in older adults at risk of cardiovascular disease with mild cognitive impairment. To read more about these and other trials, visit our clinical trials update column. For more medical news, including the JAMA Forum, Global Health, and Health Agencies updates, visit our February issues online at jamanetwork.com. That's all for this month's medical news highlights. Join us next month for another episode. To listen to more podcasts and subscribe, go to jamanetworkaudio.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Play. Audio production of this episode was by Michelle Krasinski. Once again, this is Faisal Sanjar, director and editor of JAMA Medical News. Thanks for listening.